Welcome to the Friday subscribers-only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you on what is this, the 17th of June? Guys, summer, it's official, it started, but boy, it feels like it's slipping away. <laughs> That's a depressing note to start on. <laughs> hey, guys. Good to connect, guys. Oh, I'm just getting started with depressing, <laughs> uh, Stuart. Let's talk. We got to kick off the show, guys, about these wild moves. Um unfortunately, to the downside that we've seen in both stock and bond markets over the last week. Um, uh, as we do at the Hub, we like to talk about the kind of policy implications of these moves. So, you know, I'm certainly not here to give people uh, portfolio advice. Uh, go along, Kathy Woods, ARC, now's the time to buy in. No, I'm not going to do that, but I am going to challenge both you guys to think through what are the implications of this? Because I, I don't know. There's a side of me here, maybe we'll come to you first, Sean. I'm getting a bit excited. <laughs> Explain why. It's not because I'm about to, you know, time the bottom of the market, catch a falling knife. It's that I feel like we're going through something bigger than just a run-of-the-mill sell-off. I feel like we're going through something that you could best characterize as a regime change, a shift from one financial paradigm, possibly one paradigm of government to another. That first paradigm we know well, it's the last decade and a half. Ultra low interest rates facilitated by central banks after the great financial crisis, uh, intervening in government debt markets, corporate bonds, you name it, buying assets, bringing the cost of capital effectively to the zero bound range. All of this allowed for an incredible explosion of debt, not just by consumers and corporations, but by governments. Governments no longer really faced any kind of fiscal check on their expenditures. The new reality, surging inflation. Central banks reacting to that by raising interest rates. What do higher interest rates mean? Higher borrowing costs. Again, not just for consumers and businesses, but for governments. Uh, I don't know, guys. Let me come to you first, Sean. But I sense that there's something interesting happening here. A fiscal check is reemerging that uh, could constrain what, let's face it, has been uh, an explosion, a proliferation of government spending, of government programs. Uh, all of this, again, maybe informed by the best of intentions, but ultimately leading to uh, a series of outcomes where hard choices were not made where we didn't have to really figure out how to solve for a problem. We instead threw money at it. Uh, Sean, uh, give me your take. Uh, yeah, I think in short, um, the answer is yes. Um, maybe just to elaborate, it, you know, the transition um, from uh, the model that, that has really 
as you say, been something of a, a bipartisan consensus for the past decade or so, which is to uh, run up large-scale deficits and, and not concern ourselves all too much about it. Um, the transition from that model to something resembling a, a, a more common sense, clear-eyed model is going to be painful. Um, but I think you're right that that transition uh, is going to occur, and it's going to lead, hopefully, to a, a more um, sober politics and a more uh, sober policymaking process. Let me just make two um, big picture points. The, the first is, in hindsight, um, man, we, did we not get much for this decade or so of easy money? Eh? When, you, when you sort of think yeah. back uh, about how we dedicated fiscal resources in Canada, you know, the United States and elsewhere, I mean, basically, we, we borrowed for short-term consumption. And so as interest rates come up, um, you know, and you think back about what we accomplished, um, it's a, a pretty, uh, pretty thin gruel. The, the second point, though, that I'd raise is, you know, it seems to me one of the, one of the big challenges that, um, that this transition is going to um, impose on us um, is some really difficult choices, particularly at the provincial level, uh, Rudyard and Stewart. Listeners will know um, that in many provinces, healthcare already represents something like 40% in rising of provincial program spending. Um, just this week, we have the head of the Canadian Medical Association essentially saying the Canadian healthcare system is broken due to these pandemic-induced um, backlogs for surgical and diagnostic testing. So, you know, if, I, if you're making predictions, let me make a prediction here. I think we're on the cusp of um, significant healthcare reform in Canada that, it, that will come as a result of this combination of demographic and fiscal pressures. And, you know, it seems to me um, there's a huge up, upside for a policy entrepreneur uh, or political entrepreneur to start to kind of champion what that uh, future state healthcare system look like. Stuart, is there uh, a proof point about what Sean said, but also, you know, my hopes here, uh, my desire to see some, and again, it's not to, to be cruel or to have people have less, but it's, it's Sean's right. Like, what do we have to show for the last decade and a half? Low productivity, inefficient allocation of capital to a whole series of businesses that have just burned off, you know, multiple trillions uh, in, in paper wealth, in paper value. Stuart, walk us through Christopher Freeland's uh, press conference this week, because again, I thought, does this signal the sea change, the regime change? Instead of announcing a whole bunch of new programs, you know, uh, a la uh, Newsom in California or Legault in Quebec or Boris Johnson in Britain, it sounds like the Minister of Finance has kind of gotten a bit of religion when it comes to fiscal restraint. Uh, did, I, did I read that press conference and what, come, what came out of it right in terms of your interpretation? Yeah, I, I think they are towing this really difficult line of looking like they're doing something and also kind of admitting that there's not a whole lot at this point they can really do. Um, you know, I think most of the action on this is coming from the central banks. And, you know, I was hearkening back to last year um, when the Ford government found itself in the middle of a COVID wave and they 
didn't know what to do. Um, so they ended up having this like long cabinet meeting and closing playgrounds and giving the police these extraordinary powers with immediate backlash. And that is the impulse in government sometimes is we just need to do something. We need to give people some cash. We just need to look like we're on the ball. Um, and I, I think that can be a very destructive impulse at times. Um, so I was, that's probably correct. The way you said it is that they, they knew politically they had to look like they were taking this seriously. Um, they, I think, also seemed to be aware, given I read uh, Freeland's speech closely, and it seemed to me that she was willing to admit some things that I didn't think uh, that I would hear from her. One is that, you know, this is, as Pierre Polyev said, throwing gas on the fire when you start spending more money. So all of the nine, you may have heard the number nine billion, uh, the nine billion worth of things they're doing, um, these are previously announced previously uh, intended things um, like indexing things to inflation and adding a few more bucks here and there. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Um, but I, I think it is kind of admission, an admission too that, you know, this at this point now, like all of this spending, all of this deficit spending has already happened. You know, the, the problem now lies in Tiff Macklin's hands. I, I read the speech um, slightly differently. Um, you, you know, it seems to me that the Trudeau government's interests and Christia Freeland's long-term interests aren't precisely aligned. Um, <laughs> you know, she it's it's well known that she has aspirations to replace Justin Trudeau as, as party leader um, and ultimately as prime minister. You know, we have an episode of our bi-weekly series with David Frum coming out on Monday morning. And, and one thing that, that David says is that this mix of uh, uh, rising inflation and uh, 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 quite likely uh, a recession is going to be deadly for incumbents. Um, and, and so, you know, it seems to me part of the dance that she was trying to do yesterday by putting some measures in the window, but also pre-positioning the, 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 the likelihood that this won't be a soft landing was as much about um, her own political um, calculations as it was a, a policy pronouncement or even a defense of the the government's agenda, Rudyard. You know, what, what's your sense of that? I I agree. There's some positioning there. You know, she even said, you know, to the deficit hawks and or to the hawks, fiscal hawks in the audience. So using that kind of language, understand that there is that coalition in the Liberal Party. I mean, they have been MIA. Uh, driven out as uh, you know, heartless Bay Street scoundrels under the uh, the prime ministership of Justin Trudeau, but they do exist. Uh, Bill Morneau, arguably, is the most prominent spokesperson. This, so I wonder if part of this speech wasn't a reaction to Morneau, and frankly, an acknowledgement of the extent to which Morneau's critique, um, you know, pushed home, uh, resonated certainly with her. I also wonder. Sean, a question back to you is, you know, to what extent now is there an exogenous force in the room, which is high inflation and a central bank that's sitting there probably thinking, my God, please, please do not spend billions more. Do not restart CERB. You know, do not do uh, the stupid, you know, dumb as a bag of hammers, Lego policy of here's 500 bucks for everybody making up to $100,000 a year to quote fight inflation. These things are, are, again, completely unproductive. In fact, they run counter to the bank's wishes now, which is to cool the economy. And let's remind listeners just how tough this fight's going to be. It's not as if the bank can simply, you know, command and control the price of inflation or fertilizer, sorry, the price of oil or fertilizer 
uh, they are going to have to bring demand in line with supply. And that supply, again, will be created and, and determined by factors completely outside of their control. So I think people have to understand there's going to be a, an, an over, uh, over push and over uh, calculation on the amount of demand destruction needed yes. to allow the central bank to have the effects in the economy that it wishes. And remember guys, how big the gap is, right? They wanna get down to a 2% inflation target and they're closing in on, on seven right now. So this would be my final point is there's a lot of people and there's buzz, it's kind of amusing just as what a train wreck to you know go follow some realtors from the suburbs of Toronto uh, about what's happening to home prices who say, oh, well, the central banks will cut in September, they'll pause, they won't push the economy into a recession. I'm sorry, like monetary policy is not your Twitter feed. Like you don't wake up one morning with high interest rates and the next morning with low inflation. This monetary policy has lags. It takes months, quarters to work through the economy. And I just I just think people who uh, believe that somehow this whole thing is going to resolve itself, you know, in 2022, let alone the next uh, calendar year, are are frankly delusional. Let, let me say two things in response. Uh, first of all, to your point, uh, in an interview in the past couple of days, Larry Summers, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary, said the following: "It's going to require substantial economic slack, a substantial increase in unemployment." and a reduction in GDP to bring inflation running above 8% and accelerating down to acceptable levels. So, you know, I think one of the reasons that Christia Freeland talked yesterday about the risks to a soft landing is that she's reading the tea leaves just as Larry Summers is, and we're uh, about to enter a, a period of sustained economic pain. Um, the second thing I'll say, though, is to date, uh, Rudyard and Stewart, uh, Pierre Polyev's gatekeeper's narrative has been... Uh, mostly a kind of rhetorical device. Um, you know, it's, it has a, a kind of a degree of, of populism embedded in it. But one wonders if it's actually, you know, and if it can, if you can start to provide it some policy expression, expression is actually the kind of right way to think about uh, our current economic circumstance. That is to say, as you say, Rudyard, well, the central bank is focused on bringing down aggregate demand and hoping that governments don't use fiscal policy to make that task more difficult. The other end of the side of the equation is trying to boost supply in the short run, um, but also the long run. And, you know, one of the biggest obstacles to supply in the modern economy is the panoply of regulations and red tape that is impeding housing construction, that's impeding energy development, that's impeding, you know, biomedical um, progress, uh, and any other number of issues. We, you know, we need a supply-side revolution um, if we're going to both deal with inflation in the near term, but also create the conditions for um, higher rates of growth than we've experienced over the past um, decade or so. So, you know, if I was advising Parapolyev, I would be thinking, how do I shift the gatekeeper's narrative into a concrete policy agenda that really um, either by happenstance or intention, it strikes me as actually the kind of right way to think about um, the economy in its current form. 
Let me come back to you though, Stuart. Do you, just test a thesis with you. I mean, does the gatekeeper analysis hold up when kind of all the boats are sinking? I guess my my point is that it's one thing to kind of bang on uh, about undeserved, you know, elite uh, self-dealing and uh, privilege in terms of your relative economic positioning uh, in the economy. But, you know, if we're headed here for a downturn, and, and again, let's remind listeners that, you know, the United States catches, you know, catches a cold, we usually come down with the bubonic plague and we have much higher debt levels. We never deleverage during the financial crisis. I mean, to what extent, Stuart, could we see a very different reaction in the face of a, let's hope not, but let's say a bad recession in Canada where people run into the arms of the Leviathan to invoke, you know, Thomas Hobbes, you know, they're going to seek out the safety and the protection of the state. They're not going to be interested in blowing the state up, of deregulating, of uh, creating insecurity and change uh, in the economy at a moment of economic peril. Yeah, I think that's um, definitely something to watch for, but I think it's highly dependent on when an election happens and at what stage we're at in whatever economic situation we're in. Because, you know, you think back to the 08 election um, when we were on the precipice of the financial crisis. One of, I, I mean, I was younger then. I didn't have a lot of uh, skin in the game financially at that point in my career. Um, but it was worrying and you could feel that permeating the whole world. And I think Harper's, Stephen Harper's soberness, he was an economist, he seemed like a stable person. That was really good for him at that time, I think. And then in America, that was the Obama versus McCain election happening at the exact same time. Obama had that kind of preternatural coolness to him. He just seemed calm. McCain was kind of more of a volatile figure at the time. I think those things mattered. I think the temperament of the people running was really important in that election. Um, but that was on the precipice of that crisis. And I think, you know, we can look ahead to when the Canadian election might happen. A lot of people say 2025, because that's when the Liberal NDP deal uh, expires. It might happen sooner. There's no guarantees that deal holds up the whole way through. Um, but that would be farther down the road. And I, I think that gives Polyev a lot of time to cultivate that message to adapt it to whatever is happening and i think actually on the other end of a recession it might actually be a pretty attractive message so um i think he's probably got some time but i think in the meantime he might find that there's a temperamental mismatch with him and whatever's going on in the economy guys let's uh take a break um you're gonna hear my dulcet tones a siren call to try to get you to join our newsletter at the hub Every day at 7 a.m. Eastern, Stuart Thompson's out there, uh, his labors of his keyboard, along with Luke and Amal uh, and Aiden, our core team, getting you that per diem newsletter. You're going to get an ad for that next. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about some new polling the hub has out on how Canadians are perceiving inflation. And we'll uh, take this discussion from the from the macro and the hypothetical to the real world experiences of Canadians facing some of the fastest changes in all kinds of things, uh, groceries, gas at the pump. We've got that polling data for you next. 
Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a Hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Welcome back to The Hub's Weekly Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, your Executive Director. I'm in conversation with Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Well, uh, Stuart, uh, The Hub uh, has a a new partnership. We're excited uh, with Leger, uh, the pollster, who's providing us with some great um, uh, analysis and insights or a huge survey panel that they have in Canada. You've just conducted your first poll with Leger. Give us a sense of uh, of what the findings were. You're kind of exploring the theme of inflation. Uh, what were we able to tease out in terms of some new analysis and insights? Yeah, listeners may have heard me complaining about filling up my minivan in Canada here. And I, it won't surprise them to know that the first question I asked Canadians was about gas prices. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit uh, more bleak than I uh, expected. Um, and, you know, Heather Bastedo is our polling expert. She's worked really well with us for the last year. Any good polling you see on the hub is usually coming out of her brain. Um, and she did something really smart here. Um, so 34% of people said they can't cope because of gas prices. And then the question says, well, what do you mean by can't cope and gives people a bunch of options. So um, we always wonder in polling if people maybe are dramatizing their situation. Maybe it sounds worse when you put it in a headline than it really is. But, you know, we can let listeners decide now because 66% of people say it means they don't have money to do the things they want to do after things like filling up their minivan in Canada. Um, Nearly 40% of people said it means they are struggling to keep up with bills. Uh, 32% it means they can't afford the groceries that they would usually buy. Um, 15% said it's making them have trouble with their mortgage payment. And this is only in the early days. This is a recent poll. The good thing about this um, situation we have is we can get this stuff out super quick. Uh, it's only a week or two old at this point, depending on when you listen. Um, it's going to get worse. People are going to be feeling this a lot harder too. Um, so One thing I think maybe the liberals, if we're looking back to that Christia Freeland speech, one thing the liberals might be thinking about here is something our polling tells us that um, women are more concerned about this than men. Um, And people aged 35 to 54 are extremely concerned. These are the top groups of people who are uh, concerned. So if Christia Freeland is looking to sort of allay some fears, I would say those demographics are particularly important to her. Sean, what was your takeaway from uh, the survey findings? Well, you know, it seems to me that one of the key takeaways is that, um, you know, we read oftentimes these reports, uh, Rudyard and Stewart, about um, household finances and the fact that a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. um, And, you know, that holds together as long as prices are low and unemployment is low, um, but it doesn't leave much slack. Um, if economic circumstances change. And I, I think what that polling is telling us 
is that, you know, even at this early stage, um, when we haven't seen the full maturation of rising interest rates um, throughout the economy, um, that the, the burden and cost on Canadians is, is already starting to bite. You know, Rudyard, you often talk about household indebtedness on this podcast, um, you know, high, rising interest rates will necessarily impact um, people who have student loans or, um, uh, uh, you know, costly mortgages, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess that's a long way of saying, I, I, I mentioned in last week's podcast that I worry a bit about the political economy fallout from um, this experience. Uh, you, you know, one thing that uh, Stuart has mentioned in the past is that in the 2019 election, the People's Party made a play on immigration and it kind of dropped like a rock. You know, the party ended up with something like one and a half percent of the popular vote. In 2021, um, they seized on energy and agitation around pandemic restrictions. and They managed to get something like five percent nationally. Uh, entrepreneurial populists on the left and the right are going to be looking for the next issue to seize on. And it seems to me uh, a manufactured recession, which at least in part is a result of mistakes by uh, central banks in the United States, Canada, and elsewhere, just strikes me as the perfect set of issues for um, the kind of populism um, taking hold in, in Canada and elsewhere. So that, that's what worries me the, the most is what this will mean for our politics um, and our institutions. It's interesting that you mentioned immigration because, uh, you know, we think about policy issues in Canada. One of the incredible things that we've developed is this broad and wide uh, consensus around uh, the importance beyond economics, uh, the cultural importance of higher rates of immigration. We have the highest per capita rates of legal immigration in the world. And it's a remarkable kind of achievement. It's what arguably has made 21st century Canada kind of interesting. I worry a bit, guys, that you know, if, if the Liberal government continues to fall through under a lot of pressure from, uh, from the banking lobby and other parts of the economy, real estate that are, have become over the last decade very dependent on debt and loan growth, um, if you bring in uh, you know, what these new targets, uh, close to half a million people uh, annually into a country that is undergoing a recession and large scale you know, job layoffs, uh, I worry, Stuart, that you know, this could be the catnip for the brand of populism that we always hoped would never show up in Canada, which was the nativist, exclusionary, um, frankly, at times, uh, racialized uh, argument about the composition of, of Canada and what this country, you know, should look like. Uh, that worries me. Yeah, I, I've actually always been, I've always had the work of Eric Kaufman, the political scientist. He's actually Canadian. I think he's based out of the UK now. Um, I keep that in the back of my head because his premise is that you know, Canada's kind of an outlier on this. You know, you've seen a lot of this in Europe. We've seen it with Trump in the US. And his uh, hypothesis on the reason Canada's an outlier is that we have very strong elite boundaries on this. Um, you know, you wouldn't read anything in a mainstream media outlet about this 
he's talking about English speaking Canada, you may find stuff like this in Quebec, sort of a different situation there. But um, the elite taboo here is very strong. And um, Kaufman writes about that as a good thing. And I think it has been a very good thing for Canada. But the, the major problem with it is, is that when it breaks, it breaks like a dam bursting. And I, I think that is, um, it, it's something that I have always worried about. And it's something that I don't think the left has uh, grappled with. And the trouble is if you, you know, the reason that we allow X number of immigrants a year, it's not based on some economic equation. This is not based on productivity or anything. It's based on what politicians feel like the country can handle without problems like this arising. And there's no guarantee that they know exactly what that number is. There's no guarantee that the situation stays the same uh, as when they made that initial estimate. Um, so I think it is something to worry about because we've seen this in every almost every country in the Western world at this point. And there's no reason to think that we're so special that it won't happen to us. Um, and I think there is, you know, I think probably the reaction from the left, if you were to say lower the immigration number would be, that would be a racist thing to do. I think maybe we need to get a little more nuance into this to imagine that we're talking about how things will affect our society. Not that we're doing a racist thing or a non-racist thing. We're trying to use our judgment to choose the best thing for Canada. A ton of insight from from both of you on this issue. As, as you say, Rudyard and Stuart, this is a kind of prudential question. How do we protect this um, kind of special Canadian inheritance, which is relatively high levels of public support for relatively high levels of immigration? Um, you know, what's interesting, Stuart, you said that this is an issue that, generally speaking, progressives um, aren't prepared to address. But I would note that yesterday, in response to Christia Freeland's speech, Miles Korak, uh, a well-regarded uh, Canadian economist based in New York, someone who has some proximity to the current government, was critical along these lines. He first criticized Freeland uh, for being disingenuous and trying to make the case that higher levels of immigration was somehow a, a, a solution to some of the, the economic challenges that we've been talking about. And then he went on to be critical of uh, this government's increase in the temporary foreign worker program, uh, which is uh, creating downward pressure on wages at the low end and standing in the way of uh, productivity enhancing investments that firms ought to be making uh, in order to maximize um, uh, productivity per worker. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the goal shouldn't be higher GDP as an end in itself. It has to be higher GDP per capita, raising living standards. Um, and this is where I think um, uh, the conversation needs to shift, Stuart. You, you said, how do we talk about these issues? I, I think that's the way to think and talk about immigration in the context of um, overall economic policymaking. And it's interesting to see Korak um, challenge the government along those lines. Yeah, two things just to spark off there, a really interesting discussion is, you know, David Rosenberg has done some of the research. And if, if you back out immigration, it's GDP effects over the last decade of, again, super easy money uh, policy, all kinds of credit growth, uh, all kinds of stimulation vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, taking the portion of our economy dedicated from real estate from the mid single digits into the high, high teens all that growth, knock a percentage point or more off if, if immigration uh, levels were constant from, sorry, not constant, but were, if, if there was no immigration one year to, to the next. So a lot of our GDP run up over the last decade or two 
masks, again, problems with the per capita GDP, which is so critical, Sean. It's really how we should always be thinking about GDP because we want to know our people individually becoming more wealthier, wealthier, their standards of living increasing or not. It's not the, the gross number which again is has been distorted uh, through through record high levels of, of immigration. I just can't stress enough the the risks here that we could be running if we have a sharp economic downturn and you have a scenario where you know not only are people losing their jobs, but as you say, Sean, wages are being uh, suppressed and and frankly we're courting the racialization of poverty because you have many of the people that are struggling right now in service sector jobs are themselves immigrants who uh, are visible minorities. And we know that they themselves are facing, you know, an economy that is anything but kind with rising interest rates. Uh, frankly, you know, minimum wages in Canada have increased, but uh, don't really help you very much in terms of your falling uh, purchasing power as the Canadian dollar, um, you know, is affected, buffeted by, uh, you know, this ongoing economic deleveraging uh, that we're seeing that's really benefiting uh, uh, USD, uh, the, the American currency. So there's a confluence of factors here. And I just wish we could, again, with all these things, we could try to kind of get out ahead of them, as opposed to what I worry, Stuart, is is a complacency here, a, a, a bit like calling inflation transitory. We are at risk here of, of not being a bit more proactive, of thinking about, you know, are, are there ways to, to link immigration to different economic indicators to ensure that the social consensus remains, that it remains strong, and that it's seen, again, not just simply as a positive economic force, but a, a unique cultural characteristic of Canada. Yeah, I think that ultimately should be the goal is how do you, I'm speaking as an immigrant myself, we moved here when I was five, um, how do you keep the conditions in Canada such that we can allow the maximum possible immigrants that we can, you know, like what it was, what's the thing we have to do to do that? Um, and I think, you know, when the, when the question, when the conversation becomes too simplistic, um, I think we start to lose focus on things like that. Um, and, you know, just as you were speaking there, Roger, it was occurring to me something that's occurred to me before, um, you know, when the pandemic hit, watching the struggles that um, the UCP government had in Alberta, it struck me that that might be a crisis, um, sort of perfectly ill-suited for a conservative leader. Um, just because of the way you had to react to it and the political pressures that um, any conservative would have on them at that time, it was perfect for the liberal government. We are coming into a time now, all of the things that are happening are really, really bad for a progressive or left of center government. And I think that's going to keep happening. All of these questions, like the liberal government does not want to talk about immigration. They don't want to talk about deficits. They don't want to talk about monetary policy. Justin Trudeau told us during the election, he doesn't want to talk about monetary policy. Um, so it's going to be such an interesting switch for them. Um, and we're going to be seeing a lot of Christia Freeland because you know, when there's unpopular things happening, uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't want to be the guy coming out of his house every morning telling us about them. So um, it's worth keeping an eye on this. I think we're in a an entirely new dynamic, and we've gotten there within the last couple of months. Doesn't that come back to the kind of paradigmatic point that Rudyard kicked this conversation off with? You know, that is to say um, that um, the net effect 
of um, this this experience um, ought to be a, a kind of rebalancing of the way we think about economic and fiscal policymaking. And in that vein, I would note um, that this week in, in a speech to Canada 2020, their new advisory board chair, Mark Carney, and someone, of course, who, you know, according to most reports, uh, intends to um, challenge Christia Freeland for the party leadership whenever the prime minister stepped down. He said the following, you don't shelter from the storm, you make the weather. And, you know, that reflects um, this kind of old paradigm that we've been living with for the past decade. And one wonders if that message uh, of, you know, experimentation and, uh, you know, in effect, a kind of utopian view about the capacity of the state to engineer particular economic and social outcomes will just find less of an audience um, after people go through uh, a, a manufactured recession um, because of the failings of that thinking, um, you know, over the past um, uh, several years. So I guess that's a long way of saying if we can wrap up uh, it was something of a kind of positive message, um, notwithstanding some of the challenges we're going to be facing. I, I do think we're going to end up with a kind of more mature um, and um, and a, a more sensible uh, economic policymaking framework um, in Canada and really across the Anglosphere um, when, as we come out of uh, this experience. Yeah, uh, this is regime change. And I think everyone has to realize that. Uh, we're conscious of that phrase in the context of politics, um, but this is an economic regime change. We're going from many of us, our lived experience of, of ultra low borrowing, some of the lowest interest rates in 3000 years of recorded human history into, into a different era. It, it may last quarters, it may last years, but it will be with us for a period of time. And what's important is just how binary the change is going to be from a zero interest rate world to a place where there is a cost for capital, a cost for capital for businesses, cost for capital for uh, governments, and a cost of capital for homeowners. Um, you know, hub listeners, you know, pay attention to this because it will shape, it will affect, it will uh, change your life in very real ways over the next, I guarantee you, the next 12 to 18 to 24 months. Guys, let's wrap it up there. Great conversation today. And uh, we'll do this all again next Friday for these, our hub roundtables. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. Hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. 
This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.